Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 20th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court is the appeal of Mark Janus. He's a child support specialist working for the state of Illinois, and he's challenged a state law requiring a portion of his paycheck, $45 a month, to go to the local branch of a union, a private organization that represents Janus and other Illinois public employees. Janus says the required dues amount to compelled speech, or at least compel him to subsidize the union speech with which he tends to disagree, and as such that the arrangement violates his First Amendment rights. A number of indicators foreshadow Janus's likely success. For one, in the 2014 case Harris v. Quinn, Justice Alito expressed the view of a five-justice majority that the 40-year-old precedent supporting the compelled dues system suffered from analysis that was, quote, questionable on several grounds. The four justices from that majority who remain on the bench, of course minus the departed Antonin Scalia, showed during oral argument in Janus that their skepticism of the required fees remains undiminished. That leaves Neil Gorsuch, who was notably silent during arguments to tip the scales, and notwithstanding his sortie this week with the court's liberal wing, prevailing wisdom pegs him as the deciding vote in Mr. Janus's favor. But a perhaps surprising cohort of conservative and libertarian voices have offered a contrarian view. Amici, including former U.S. Solicitor General under Ronald Reagan and Harvard Law Professor Charles Freed, UCLA's Eugene Volokh, and University of Chicago Law's Will Bode, have argued that whether or not compelled union dues are bad policy, they don't amount to a First Amendment violation, because governments, in order to function, regularly require that individuals forfeit money that's put towards objectives they might find objectionable, like environmental regulations or a higher minimum wage. In the view of these amici, there's no difference, at least for First Amendment purposes, between the state of Illinois taxing its citizens so as to pay the attorney bargaining against the public employee union, and the state compelling a set of citizens to fund the union's representative. That the High Court has created doctrine treating the two situations so differently puzzles those amici, as it does today's guest. He's Nicholas Bowie, incoming assistant professor at Harvard Law School and author of a forthcoming paper in the Virginia Law Review titled the Government Could Not Work Doctrine. His paper addresses Janus's claim and some other presently salient First Amendment suits and argues that the court's approach to such challenges has, in most areas of law, been animated by this background assumption that, in order for a government to operate, it can compel subsidies from citizens and also direct transfers of money between private individuals, as with minimum wage and overtime laws. In his view, fundamental constitutional principles and Long-standing jurisprudence recommend that individuals upset with laws like Illinois, or as we briefly get into Colorado's public accommodation law from the pending Masterpiece Cake Shop appeal, should wage their fight electorally to seat legislatures favoring, for instance, religious exemption laws, rather than by trying to create a First Amendment doctrine that begins to functionally sanction an individual's right to personally nullify governmental laws of fairly neutral general application. Before hearing from our guest, though, let's get to our opening briefs. In one rendered Supreme Court decision this week, Justice Neil Gorsuch swung a 5-4 court in favor of a lawful permanent resident whom the Board of Immigration Appeals had deemed removable based on a catch-all provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act. The court's four liberal justices, plus Gorsuch, found unconstitutionally vague the catch-all section, which follows a list of enumerated convictions that render lawful permanent residents, which renders removable anyone convicted of, quote, any other offense that, by its nature, involves a substantial risk that physical force against the person or property of another be used in the course 
of committing the offense. End quote. Gorsuch wrote separately to stress his concern for upholding a robust system of procedural due process and in making individuals clearly aware of the conditions under which the government might deprive them of life, liberty, or property. His predecessor on the bench, Antonin Scalia, cited similar themes in the 2015 ruling that invalidated an analogous catch-all provision and upon which the majority's reasoning here was largely based. Notably also, the ruling affirmed a Ninth Circuit opinion penned by the late Stephen Reinhardt. And in the Ninth Circuit, a fairly novel bit of appellate procedure prescribed by a split panel Tuesday will see assigned a special prosecutor to fight former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio's attempt to vacate his criminal contempt conviction after being relieved of his sentence by a presidential pardon. District Judge Susan Bolton denied Arpaio's request to vacate the conviction, reasoning that a dismissal of the matter with prejudice complied with the presidential reprieve. The U.S. government told the Ninth Circuit it did not intend on defending Judge Bolton's ruling, and dissenting here, Judge Tallman voiced concern that the fairly unusual move was unnecessary and ill-advised and invited political machinations and constitutional arguments on them. Presidential pardoning power are far outside the boundaries of Arpaio's appeal. In California, the state's high court granted Thursday a petition for review in a thorny constitutional case about education funding. In it, the court will wade into the current arrangement of state funding directed to local entities charged with carrying out state-directed educational mandates. A group of local entities and the California School Board Association sued the state for offsetting funding required by new mandates with funds that had already been earmarked for local districts. The First District Court of Appeal panel, noting the problem was a vexing one, sided with the state, and now the Supreme Court will have its say. Nicholas Bowie is an incoming assistant professor of law at Harvard Law School. He's written a forthcoming paper on the government could not work doctrine, on what he calls the government could not work doctrine, and the Supreme Court's historical approach to challenges like the one pending presently before it in the case of Janus versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. He joins us now. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so uh, you, you've written a very interesting paper forthcoming in the, the University of Virginia Law Review. It's entitled The Government Could Not Work Doctrine. Um, it synthesizes, sort of prompted by a recent Supreme Court case law and cognizant of some pending Supreme Court case law, one of which we'll dig into most deeply, the, the Janus case, where um, a state employee challenges the compulsory union dues he must pay to the, um, the, the bargaining unit that represents him as a state employee in, in Illinois, um, the Janus case. Um, so sort of cognizant of some of those type of First Amendment-based challenges, you, you write this paper that synthesizes a doctrine, um, the government could not work doctrine, that I think sort of you say more or less, and, and certainly sometimes less consistently, um, has, has been undergirding and, and been applied maybe impliedly by the Supreme Court sort of throughout its history, often in challenges where folks bring suits to to try and strike down government regulations they think sort of violate their political, personal, religious beliefs. Um, so you say that the court tends to apply this doctrine because it, it recognizes that for a government to really function, it, it must be able to compel citizens to do certain things, to, to subsidize maybe via taxes, certain things that the citizens might not themselves support. So is that generally the the idea of the paper, and then how does that sort of map onto how um, that doctrine relates to 
current cases like Janus? Yeah, the idea of the paper is there are many contexts in which people do not like what the government forces them to do. So the government forces people to do all sorts of things, like pay taxes. Um, the government has often had a draft in its history. Um, traffic regulations require you to stop at a red light or go on a green light. Um, I could go on and on. There are thousands of examples in which people object to what a law compels them to do. And when the Supreme Court has faced these sorts of challenges, and people have said, I don't like what this law is doing, and therefore this law is unconstitutional, the court has responded, wait, you may not like what the law is doing, but one of the principles of Republican government is that often a majority will rule and the minority has to follow it. So that's not always true, obviously, but in general, one of the implications of a system of majority rule is that the majority will, in fact, come up with a decision for what the law should be, that when we have a red light, we will all stop. We will drive on the right side of the road, that sort of thing. So the court has used this language, the government would not work if the Constitution uh, prohibited the government from compelling people to do something. In other words, just because someone doesn't like what the government is doing or doesn't like what the government is compelling them to do, that alone does not make a law constitutional. And that point seems to have been lost with recent cases that have appeared before the court, both this term and uh, for the past few terms, in which people have uh, most recently taken the First Amendment and claimed that because a law compels them to do something that they have a religious objection to, or that they have an ideological objection to, that makes the law unconstitutional under the First Amendment. And so what my article does is just apply all of these other cases, other examples, in which the government has forced someone to drive on the right side of the road or pay taxes or you know, uh, submit to uh, the selective service requirement, and just apply that to current case law to say, look, these First Amendment cases are essentially asking the government to do the same thing, to say, we don't want to, say, pay a fee that goes to a labor union, or we don't want to serve cakes to certain types of customers because we have ideological or religious objections to that. And the article argues that essentially the court should respond by applying the same response it's done in previous cases, which is this principle that the government couldn't work if just because you disagreed with something, even if that disagreement comes from a strong ideological or religious position, therefore it's unconstitutional. I just wanted to also start with one bit of framing that you you do early on in the piece, citing some some of the the most foremost philosophers and, and thinkers of, of history, Plato and, and Gandhi, um, and and others, um, describing what options typically citizens have at their disposal when they they are confronted with government laws or compulsory regulations with which they they disagree or, or find to be uh, transgressive of their their personal beliefs uh, or religious beliefs. Um, and, and those options have tended to be either to um, nonetheless do one's required government duty render unto, unto Caesar, as it were, or instead to object to, to, to break the, the given law, but be cognizant that a punishment could and justly 
would potentially follow. I think you, you give an interesting example of Henry David Thoreau having, I think, refused to pay taxes because he was uh, opposed to the, the Mexican-American War. Those are sort of the two general options you, you've highlighted as folks, ones folks tend to have, but the newer one, you, uh, as you put it, is that uh, the, the third option is suing the government to, to vindicate your, your own particular police. Could you just uh, describe that framing? Yeah, so thinking about Thoreau actually is what launched this article. So Henry David Thoreau in the 19th century uh, famously opposed the Mexican-American War. Uh, he opposed all war, but this one in particular. And he refused to pay taxes on the ground that he didn't want the tax money that he gave to the federal government to wind up either supporting uh, the Mexican-American War or supporting slavery, which he also ideologically opposed, or a number of other things that the government was spending money on that he disagreed with. So Thoreau faced a choice when the tax collector came and said, why are you not paying your taxes? He could have submitted and said, you know, you're right. Taxes are a duty that I am required to pay. And even though I don't like what the money is going to be spent on, I recognize that this is the law. That was one option available to him. Another option is what he did, which is, look, I care about this so deeply, and I think that this law that requires me to pay taxes for things that I object to is so immoral, I'm going to go to jail rather than pay these objectionable taxes. He eventually did go to jail, and then someone else paid the taxes on his behalf, which apparently made him pretty annoyed. But he... Uh, he ended up writing this essay, which is now called uh, Civil Disobedience. It was called at the time Resistance to Civil Government, um, in which he laid out his argument that when you disagree with a law that requires you to do something and you don't want to do it, it's your duty, it's your moral duty to resist what the government is telling you to do. And it seems as though if Thoreau were alive in the 21st century, he would have taken a third approach to not just go to jail, not pay the taxes, but find your nearest lawyer and sue the government and say, look, I really strongly object to paying these taxes. You cannot compel me to spend money on these ideological objectives that I disagree with. That violates my First Amendment right of conscience. You could also offer a religious objection and say, look, I'm religiously opposed to war. And so for you to compel me to pay tax money that ends up supporting the war violates my First Amendment right. And it seems as though today the court would actually be pretty open to that line of argument, where there are a few cases before the court this term, but there have been cases over the past five years or so in which people have made variations on that argument that I strongly object or I religiously object to something the government is compelling me to do. And rather than face the penalty for not complying, I'm going to challenge what the government is doing because I believe that the First Amendment does not allow the government to compel me to do something that violates my belief. Had, back in the 19th century, Thoreau found an attorney willing to, to bring the sort of case that you, you describe him bringing more uh, in a modern context. You write in your piece that at that time and up until the 1940s and a case West Virginia versus Barnett, well known in the First Amendment context, we'll get more into. Um, but up until that point, 
the court was was pretty unsympathetic to arguments like the one Thoreau you know would have made or in, that that you just described that personal objections, maybe religious objections, can can sort of trump governmental regulations like taxes and and the like. That there were some instances where where laws, in fact, pretty clearly did maybe violate or cause people to to go against their their deeply held beliefs uh, beliefs, but their challenges to those laws like laws against polygamy or bigamy were were not uh, heard with any sympathy with the Supreme Court, right? Yeah, that's right. So the first First Amendment case to reach the Supreme Court um, didn't actually arrive in the court until the 1870s, so almost a century after the First Amendment was drafted and adopted. And in that case, which is uh, Reynolds versus United States, the um, petitioner in that case was a Mormon man who claimed that if he did not marry multiple women, he would suffer what he called damnation in the life to come. In other words, he saw the choice put to him by the laws against polygamy as one of either I comply with the government and then I suffer eternal damnation, or I do what you know my religion compels me to do and face these criminal penalties. And so I you know, personally think those criminal penalties are outrageous. And I don't blame him for thinking that this is a terrible choice for the government to put anyone in in the first place. But when he raised this challenge under the First Amendment, saying that the First Amendment prohibits the government from putting this choice on an individual, the court responded, no, that doesn't violate the First Amendment. It doesn't even raise a First Amendment issue, because for a person to claim a religious exemption from a generally applicable law, like the law against polygamy would make every man a law unto himself in the language of the court. And so in, there was a couple of cases like that that followed Reynolds's case. But for the most part, it, the court responded the same way, which is the government simply couldn't operate if when faced with a generally applicable law, individuals could claim a religious or a conscientious objection or exemption and say, because this law compels me to do something, because it compels me to say to drive on the right side of the road, when I feel this very strong need to drive on the left side of the road, I want an exemption. The court has responded, no, government couldn't operate if everyone could claim that sort of exemption. You said, you write in, in your piece, and we referenced that with the West Virginia versus Barnett case, there's kind of an overnight shift when it comes to the, the court's um, at least implied use or express reference to the government being uh, it being necessary for the government to, to compel citizens to, to do certain things. Um, but before we get to the Barnett case, there is a, a period uh, before that, the sort of the, you know the, the Lochner era, where it sort of seems like the idea of the government not working without its ability to to make certain laws that logic is is less persuasive to the court where. You know, the really the freedom to contract becomes the the prevailing consideration, and so laws like minimum wage laws or or different sorts of child labor or other workplace safety laws are generally I think struck down or not viewed terribly favorably. How, how does that sort of play into this chronology and in, in your doctrinal uh, synthesis? Yeah, so the court has for a very long time maintained this distinction between laws that serve a public purpose and laws that serve a private purpose or have a private end. And so this came up in the 19th century in the context of ordinary taxes and 
bonds and other ways that local and state governments raised revenue uh, when they didn't have access to tariffs. So for example, imagine you're a 19th century city, uh, you want to uh, educate the children in your city, you need to raise money to do that. So sometimes cities uh, allowed, they sold bonds or you know, just had taxes or other ways of collecting revenue. And people challenged those taxes, that uh, revenue collection saying, I don't want to pay for the education of someone else's kid. I don't want to, you know, I disagree with what the government is spending my money on. And so the court faced a number of challenges uh, under a variety of clauses. Um, some of them were under the contracts clause. Some of them were under the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment or the 14th Amendment after it was adopted. And for the most part, the court tried to distinguish between okay, let's take this tax, and this tax will be good if it serves a public purpose, but this tax will not be good and will strike it down as unconstitutional if it only serves a private purpose. In other words, if it takes from A and gives to B, that's bad, but if it takes from A and gives to the general public, then that's good. So there were perhaps 30 or 40 cases like this uh, where the court looked at a tax that the town had collected and asked, okay, what are you spending the money on? Is it private or is it public? And so some things the court called private included a tax that ended up supporting a railroad to go through the city or a tax that supported a new factory. So you would tax your town and spend the money on a corporation that would come in and build a factory to create jobs. The court struck that sort of thing down as private and therefore unconstitutional. And so the, but at the same time, the court upheld taxes that served a public function. And some of the public functions were exactly the same as some of the private functions that it was striking down. So a tax that supported the development of a mine near a town, the court upheld as constitutional because mining was for the benefit of the public. And eventually the court recognized that huh, this is sort of a weird distinction we're making between private and public, because even the most private use, even the, the tax that supports a single person doing a single thing, like eminent domain, you know, the, uh, the eminent domain of property that would go to the construction of a, a factory for a single employer, that's money going from the public to an individual, but it also can serve a public use if that factory is going to provide people with jobs or if the railroad is going to provide transportation. So eventually the court just abandoned this effort to distinguish between public and private uses, and it adopted this principle of deference, where so long as the local government could articulate a reasonable objective or legitimate goal for its tax, the court said, we'll just okay this. So, so long as the tax is reasonably related to a legitimate governmental end, we'll allow it. In the Lochner era, so, so this, what I've been talking about so far has been through the 19th century, but uh, it continued in various guises through the early 20th century, notably in this case called uh, Lochner versus New York, in which the court struck down a mandatory hours law in New York under the 14th Amendment because it violated what it called liberty of contract. 
And the court was making a similar distinction in these sorts of cases involving new sets of regulations like minimum wage, minimum or maximum hour laws, in which people argued the same thing that they had argued 100 years earlier, which is a minimum wage law takes from A and gives to B. It takes from the public. It takes from individuals and gives it to another individual for private use. It doesn't support a public use. And so some regulations the court struck down as uh, this takes from A and gives to B. And some regulations the court upheld as, oh, no, this is actually clothed in the public interest. And so this sort of regulation is allowed. But that distinction turned out to be equally untenable. And by the New Deal, by the 1930s, the court slowly abandoned this set of distinctions from the Lochner era to the sort of modern regulation uh, where, or the modern application of the due process clause where the court has once again adopted this regime of deference. So when the, you know, and this is just generally the case today, when the court faces a regulation and someone opposes the regulation and says, you know, I don't like what this regulation is doing. It's taking money away from me. The court says, well, is the regulation reasonably related to a legitimate governmental end? If so, we'll accept it. And it doesn't try to you know, thread the needle between figuring out what is a regulation that serves the public and what is a regulation that only serves the private. It's, it's uh, interesting. And just to, to jump ahead for a second, there's certainly echoes of that private-public distinction um, in the in the Janus case, at least in, in the briefing. One argument goes along the lines of, you know, this union, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, it is a private entity. And so the Illinois law that requires some of these public employees' salary to go to the union so the union can bargain on their behalf. Um, it is sort of a A to B transfer from one individual to another individual, private individual, uh, as opposed to there being you know sort of the intermediary of the government that collects the taxes and then distributes them for the, the general welfare. But you say that that sort of distinction is not really held up in, in the past. So do you think it's the sort of thing that's also not kind of a red herring here? Yeah, so I think it's something that is probably going to animate at least a few of the justices. This this, this distinction between public and private is you know, pervasive in American law. And as far as funding or compelled funding for public uses or private uses, um, Justice Alito in particular has expressed in his opinions that he sees a strong distinction between a tax that takes from the general public and sends it on a public use, which he finds to be okay, versus the sort of issue in Janus, and we, we can dive into that now if you'd like, but uh, where he sees it as the government taking from a set of individuals and giving it to a different set of private individuals. And so I think that no one on the court would expressly object to the idea of a tax that takes from the public and gives to the public, but they would object to uh, what you're describing as taking from A and giving to B. That said, I don't think that that's a reasonable distinction for the same reason that the court has abandoned it you know, two or three times before, in that there are so many examples today of taxes that end up going to, or, or sort of take from A and give to B, 
uh, or taxes that benefit only a private party. So the example I talk about most in the paper is, you know, states, local governments, or the federal government that spends money on particular private actors. So federal funds find their way into Planned Parenthood. They find their way into crisis pregnancy centers. They find their way into all sorts of nonprofits and churches that people might, or other religious institutions that people might object to. The government finances all sorts of private actors. Individuals get tax exemptions, they get tax benefits, they get subsidies from the government for doing all sorts of things. And to say that that is private and that a private beneficiary is getting money from other private taxpayers, um, I think would, this is why the government cannot work doctrine, I think, or, or why a case like Janus is on such a slippery slope. Jumping back and, and, and filling out the, the rest of the chronology that your paper sets up, maybe from the West Virginia Barnett case in 1942 up to, to present day, what are kind of the most important inflection points? That being one where you say there's an overnight shift in, in this idea of the government could not work doctrine, um, that case involving a law being struck down that had required, I believe, school children to, to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and then there are a couple other points that we could flag as they're important. One, the the Buckley-Vallejo case that I think sort of gets into what you were talking about, the government collecting taxes and using it for its own speech being the sort of thing that the court tends to smile on, even if that speech is in the form of the government giving the money to private actors. Um, and then a year later, the court kind of takes a, a different path in the forerunner for the Janus case, the Abood versus Detroit case, where pieces of money that is required to be given to a public union uh, are, are struck down, um, the, the, the sorts of money that would go to those unions for any of their political ends uh, over and above their just collective bargaining and sort of administrative ends. I guess uh, maybe just fill us in on kind of the rest of the development and, and the chronology of this uh, doctrine as you, you you describe it. Yeah, so West Virginia versus Barnett was one of a handful of cases all involving Jehovah's Witnesses in the years leading up to World War II, or at least United States' entry into World War II. And it was sort of a seminal moment in constitutional history. Uh, Jeremy Kessler, a professor at Columbia, has written about this uh, extensively. And the Jehovah's Witnesses were really provoking uh, or, or, you know, pushing the boundaries for what the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment would prohibit. Because at the time, Jehovah's Witnesses were really discriminated against. There were lots of laws that prohibited the sort of activities that um, they thought were particularly important, uh, including leafleting and going from door to door. And in the case of West Virginia versus Barnett, sitting down during the Pledge of Allegiance. And so there was a law in Pennsylvania that required people to, uh, required all students to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And in 1943, the Supreme Court upheld that law, saying that the government had a strong interest in uniformity. Um, and therefore, there was nothing unconstitutional about it. But uh, later that year, in West Virginia versus Barnett, which was a case from the neighboring state of West Virginia, uh, the court, with a new justice on board, um, struck down an identical regulation in West Virginia and said, actually, laws that compel people to stand violate this 
this principle uh, that compelled speech or this compelled activity violates some core principle of the Constitution. And Justice Robert Jackson, who wrote the opinion in Westbrook versus Barnett, uh, finished with this very famous line, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. And that line ended up becoming incredibly influential for the court in all sorts of areas of law, but in the one I focus on in this paper with the government cannot work doctrine, the, the court took that line as gospel and started applying it to strike down all sorts of regulations that compelled people to do things. Um, and the, for example, uh, they struck down regulations that required people to work on as much as they could in order to receive unemployment benefits because um, a Seventh-day Adventist complained that they didn't want to work on Saturday and that it violated their rights to uh, require them to work on Saturday in order to collect, or to require them to look for a job that would require them to work on Saturday in order to collect unemployment benefits. But, and, and, and so there is a lot of good things to be said about this doctrine. I am a fan of West Virginia versus Barnett. However, I think that the, the principle that the government cannot require someone to say something that they disagree with, that the government cannot prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, just is empirically untrue. And as a matter of principle, it would be really hard for anyone to sort of enforce that principle. So school curricula generally are examples in which the government prescribes what shall be orthodox. There are lots of examples in which the government compels people to do things like the government. Robert Post has written a lot about this, where um, the government compels you know, witnesses to testify in court. The government compels jurors to tell what their verdict is. The government compels people to purchase insurance and to say when they've gotten into an auto accident. The government compels people to wear a seatbelt. These are all examples of the government prescribing what shall be orthodox. And some of them are ideological, and some of them may not seem ideological today, uh, but they might seem ideological in the future. And so in, 19, in the 1970s, the court used the sort of, uh, I don't know, we want the government to be able to compel people to do things, but not ideological things in the case that's now at issue today in Abood versus uh, Detroit Board of Education where the court essentially made the same distinction with respect to agency fee laws, which are the laws that require or that allow, well, <laughs> agency fee laws are a little complicated, but uh, generally speaking, the federal government and most state governments at the time required labor unions to represent all employees in a particular bargaining unit, even if the employees were not members of the labor union. And in exchange, the government uh, allowed the union to collect fees from everybody, from its members who ordinarily had to pay dues, as well as from non-members who didn't want to become members of the union. They had to pay fees to pay for all of the collective bargaining efforts of the union, as well as all of the political lobbying that the union did on their behalf. So unions would typically go to bat for employees, both in the collective bargaining 
office and also in the legislature. So a teacher out of Michigan objected to this agency fee, which required him to pay for this union, which he didn't want to join, and his activities he disagreed with. And his lawyers argued that this sort of compelled funding violates the principle of West Virginia versus Barnett. It compels what shall be orthodox. And the court responded, well, we actually really like this labor piece that unions provide. And we don't see any First Amendment problem at all with a law that compels an employee to pay for the sort of collective bargaining activity of the union. That doesn't seem to raise any red flags for us. But when it comes to what seems more ideological, the lobbying efforts of the union, that seems to us more like what we don't like from West Virginia versus Barnett. And so the court made this distinction and said that violates the First Amendment uh, for a union to compel somebody to pay for the union's political activities. But it doesn't violate the First Amendment. It doesn't even implicate the First Amendment for a employee to be forced to pay for the union's collective bargaining activities, which, after all, the employee benefits from. And if the employee didn't pay for it, the employee would just be a free rider. And so today, that distinction is before the court in a case called Janus, which is brought by another public sector employee who, out of Illinois who is arguing that that sort of agency fee law violates the First Amendment, even if it just compels him to pay for the collective bargaining activity of the union. And his argument is essentially that collective bargaining is ideological, that there's no real difference between when a union lobbies a state legislature versus when a union law or bargains for increased funding for its, you know, its members or anything else that a union does, that it's all ideological driven. And so it all falls under the same Barnett principle that the government can't compel what shall be or, or can't prescribe which shall be orthodox. So that, that, that's sort of where Barnett has landed. It's led to this principle that the government cannot tell you, you know, what to believe. The government cannot make you pay for things that you disagree with, which is a, again, a great idea in theory, but it just doesn't seem to compute with or comport with everything else the government does that requires people to pay for things that they might disagree with. Because in every other context outside of labor law, the court has actually just abandoned the Barnett principle altogether. So, for example, a few years after Abood, in a case called United States versus Lee, this member of, there's an Amish business owner who objected to paying social security taxes on the ground that he would go to hell if he were forced to pay these taxes on behalf of his employees. But the court said, uh, even though we are compelling you to do something that you really strongly religiously object to, we just don't see how the government could operate if people could get out of paying taxes because they raised this Barnett principle. The language government would not work uh, if objecting taxpayers could raise Barnett and get out of paying taxes. So the court just rejected that claim. And in a couple of other cases, the court did something similar, most notably in Buckley versus Vallejo, where uh, one of the many challenges to uh, the campaign finance regime brought by uh, Senator Buckley was to the part of 
the law that paid or the public financing of uh, presidential candidates. So on everyone's uh, tax form, you know, it's the day after tax day here in Massachusetts, and on everyone's tax form, uh, there's a little box that says whether you want now $3 to go toward uh, the public funding of public financing of candidates. But whether you check that box or not has actually nothing to do with whether your tax money goes toward those candidates. Your tax money will go to any candidate who pays or who chooses to collect public funding. The question is just how much will be allocated. So the, the checkoff box actually just has nothing to do with uh, whether your tax money goes to a presidential candidate who you might ideologically just disagree with. So Senator Buckley looked at this uh, regime and thought, hey, this is Barnett. You are compelling, you're prescribing what shall be orthodox. You are compelling me to pay for something I disagree with. You're compelling me to pay tax money that will go to a presidential candidate who I, Senator Buckley, might actually run against. Surely this violates the principle of Barnett. And the court said, don't be ridiculous. That has nothing to do with Barnett. You know, just because the government is compelling you to pay for this doesn't mean that the First Amendment is involved. We're just going to treat this as though there's no First Amendment problem. And in the context of the court's history, I see this as a return to the government could not work doctrine. So the return to this principle that, yeah, actually in a Republican form of government, there are just going to be these hard cases where not everybody agrees with what the majority has decided uh, shall be orthodox. And while that might be regrettable, it isn't inherently unconstitutional. It's interesting that those, that juxtaposition of those two cases is occurring, I think, just a year apart. It, it kind of reframes the issue that we've spoken about now um, a couple of times, the the idea that the court seems more comforted and more sanguine when money comes into the government first via tax and then is disseminated to some private party as opposed to in Abud and now in Janus where a law directs money really just from two sort of private parties to each other. But it's just, a, I guess, it seems like a, a bit of an odd basis. I mean, I suppose it, 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 maybe it makes some legal sense. I, what, why, why is the court so much more sanguine when it, it, it works that way? I'm actually not sure because I, th- I think the court has arrived at this point where it understands that if people were allowed to exempt themselves from taxation, that would be bad. The government couldn't work if you could just get out of paying taxes. But a regime in which you know the government forces A to pay money that doesn't enter the government's hands and goes directly to B, it seems like you can draw some sort of principled distinction between ordinary taxes and that. And I think intuitively, there does seem to be something that makes sense about the distinction between when the government collects taxes, that's different from when the government compels someone A to give to B. But the problem is that there are a lot of taxes and a lot of just ordinary ways the government collects revenue that involve precisely that, that involve A giving to B. The, the, the distinction between sort of taxes on one hand and A to B on the other has been sort of hard to draw, particularly from the court's perspective, since a case from 2006 or 2007 called Johan versus a Livestock Association. And so this was this was really interesting case in which a group of livestock farmers 
challenged a checkoff regime where they were forced to pay money that went to a promotion of beef. So the beef that's what for dinner campaign. And so some of these checkoff provisions are overseen by the Department of Agriculture. Some of them are overseen by private entities that are then indirectly regulated by the Department of Agriculture. The checkoffs across the country, there are a lot of them. They look very different. But a lot of them look exactly like a boot where money is going from one group and is ending up in another group's hands. And the government is sort of looking at this and overseeing it, but not necessarily getting involved in the transaction. And so in 2006, a group of livestock ranchers sued saying that this violates the Barnett principle. You are compelling me to spend money going to a cause I ideologically disagree with. And the federal government's lawyers in that case responded, no, this is actually closer. This is not a booed. This is not uh, Barnett. This is like Buckley versus Vallejo. This is just ordinary taxation. Uh, this is more like a tax than like your fee. And the government agreed, or the Supreme Court agreed with the government and said, when the, in, in this do, in this checkoff system, even though the government is not physically collecting the money, and giving it to a third party, it is functionally identical to that. It's just a tax. And even though the only people who are paying this are these cattle ranchers, and even though it's like a small group, that does not diminish the fact that it's still just an ordinary tax. It's just a tax on a small identifiable group of people. And there are all sorts of taxes that are on small identifiable groups of people. Uh, like tariffs or certain licensing taxes. And so taxes come in many forms. This is just one of those forms. So after Johan, which was now a little bit over a decade ago, it's sort of hard to draw the line between what is a tax and what isn't a tax. Because if you simply substituted public sector employee for cattle rancher and union for the beef it's what's for dinner campaign, you have a very similar situation that the court has previously called a tax and therefore subject to what it calls the government speech doctrine, which I just see as an example of this government can not work doctrine. It's, it's interesting. Um, one, one other piece of the, the government speech doctrine that we might just, just pull out real quickly is that in certain cases in particular, one folks know about the Garcetti versus Sabalos case um, from the early 90s, um, the, the principles articulated that public employees, government employees tend to have pretty diluted First Amendment rights when they're kind of within their, their role as public employees. And so that sort of makes the proposition that a, a challenge like Janice's or like Abood's previously sort of based in First Amendment law and existing within the context of that person's public employment, it seems that that, that would necessarily invoke strict scrutiny from the court, um, considering that in other cases involving First Amendment law and public employees, strict scrutiny was, was certainly not applied like in the Garcetti case. And then one other just point, as we brought up strict scrutiny, you know, I'd be curious to ask you what the, the main difference is between the government could not work doctrine um, that, you, that you sort of synthesize as undergirding a lot of the court's jurisprudence and, and just sort of strict scrutiny generally, because in that latter, there's obviously the piece where if a, a government law 
serves a compelling government interest, which you, know, you would imagine having the government continue to function as a compelling interest, then the law can, can meet and can survive strict scrutiny. So it, what, what is the, the dividing line, the difference between those two, those two uh, ideas, the, your doctrine that you've described and, and strict scrutiny generally? Yeah, so I'll begin with the first question about Garcetti. So we, we were talking about this timeline from Barnett uh, that began with 1943, West Virginia versus Barnett, and went through Abood and the mid-70s, along with Lee in the early 80s, but also Buckley versus Vallejo, which was the year before Abood. And so th- those cases were clustered around 1976, 1977. Um, but by the 1980s, the court had sort of walked back from Barnett and virtually every context especially in the context of public sector employees. So in the late 70s, early 80s, there were a series of cases in which public employees argued that under the logic of West Virginia versus Barnett, which said that you can't pass a law that requires everybody to stand during the national or during the Pledge of Allegiance, public sector employees said, okay, therefore you cannot pass a law compelling me, a public employee, to say certain things or you can't pass a law that prohibits the government from firing me for saying certain things. And the court simply rejected these lines of argument saying, actually, it makes a lot of sense for the government to be able to exercise authority over its employees, over what they say and what they can't say. In other words, to have a regime in which you know a governor could not fire a aide who reported to represent the governor's position, but said whatever he or she felt like, you know, would be a crazy system. The governor has to be able to tell that aide, look, you need to say this to the press. You cannot say other things to the press. And the court declined to apply the same sort of First Amendment scrutiny that it had previously applied in Barnett to the context of public sector employees. So the court has sort of taken that as its own line of cases. And so by today, public employees have very few First Amendment rights. Uh, in fact, as a public employee, you can be fired for, uh, well, under the First Amendment at least, you can be fired for whistleblowing so long as what you're whistleblowing about was in the context of your role as an employer, as an employee, as opposed to your identity as a public citizen speaking on matters of public concern. So public sector employees are not only far away from where far away from Barnett, they're far away from the world of before Barnett, where they have even fewer First Amendment protections. And ironically, in the case of Janus, uh, this this line of cases is what the state of Illinois is um, pointing to as evidence for why a boot makes sense. They're saying if employees can be fired for all sorts of things, if employees essentially have no First Amendment rights in their role as employees, then surely they have no First Amendment right to object to a law that requires them as part of their wages to pay this agency fee that ends up in the union. And it's ironic because one of the defendants in this case, or one of the respondents in this case, is itself a labor union, making the point that public employees just have no First Amendment or have very few First Amendment rights. So that that does seem to be a compelling point, that if you are a employee of the government, and you don't have the right to object to what your employer is doing, then why should you have the right to object to what the union is doing? But 
the other side, Janice, is making a, an argument that I imagine many members of the court will adopt, which is, yeah, but the government, you know, one, one thing is different from the other, and the government simply shouldn't be able to tell people what they need to spend their money on, regardless of the fact that the government does this all the time. As far as what is the difference between the government could not work doctrine and strict scrutiny, there there's a pretty big difference. And so whenever the Supreme Court asks whether a law is constitutional, it, you know, just to oversimplify things, it has two ways of answering the question. It either applies minimal scrutiny or it applies strict scrutiny or exacting scrutiny. And under minimal scrutiny, it asks essentially, is this law reasonably related to a legitimate purpose? If so, we'll allow it. If not, then we'll strike it down. And under strict scrutiny, it asks the version of the question, is this law narrowly tailored to meet a compelling governmental interest? And that's a much more exacting test. Very few laws um, survive strict scrutiny. And another way of describing the difference between minimal scrutiny and strict scrutiny is to say the court applies minimal scrutiny when it presumes that a law is constitutional and applies strict scrutiny when it presumes the law is unconstitutional. So in the context of the Equal Protection Clause, when a law explicitly invokes race, when it makes a race-based distinction, the court presumes the law is unconstitutional for that reason, and so it applies strict scrutiny. But when a regulation is just purely economic and has nothing to do with race or gender or with citizenship status or a number of other things that the court presumes is unconstitutional, then the court just applies this minimal rational basis scrutiny. And it does something similar in the First Amendment context. And so the question that my paper asks and the question posed by the government could not work doctrine is when the court is confronted with a law that compels someone to do something, should the court apply strict scrutiny? Should the court presume that the law is unconstitutional? Or should the court apply minimal scrutiny and presume that the law is constitutional unless there's something else wrong with the law? And while many regulations might survive strict scrutiny, I don't think that all regulations, like ordinary regulations that compel people to do things, would necessarily survive strict scrutiny. And it would lead to a really different world, a really different legal system, if the court were to apply strict scrutiny to every law that compelled someone to do something they ideologically disagreed with. And in the Justice Scalia was actually one of the strongest proponents on the court of this point that we cannot apply strict scrutiny to every single law on the books because every law in some way can be understood as a compulsory law. And it would really lead to a tremendous amount of litigation and get the court involved in just striking down regulations left and right if the court were to apply strict scrutiny to all of them. And so there was a case in the early 90s called Employment Division versus Smith that involved someone in Oregon who used peyote for ceremonial purposes and as a consequence was fired, or I don't recall if he was fired or was unable to receive unemployment benefits. But either way, he claimed that this was a Barnett situation where the law uh, that made the use of peyote illegal was itself unconstitutional as applied to him because it compelled him to do something that he had religious objection to. And the court 
you know, made a very firm commitment away from sort of West Virginia versus Barnett's principle in saying, no, we are going to just apply normal, minimal scrutiny when a law compels someone to do something, even if they religiously object to it, so long as the law is generally applicable and religiously neutral. In other words, so long as it's just an ordinary, generally applicable law, we're going to presume that it's constitutional as opposed to analyzing it closely and requiring religious exemptions or other kinds of exemptions. And that sort of case is now under challenge by a different case before the Supreme Court, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, in which Baker in Colorado is claiming that Colorado's anti-discrimination law, which requires him to provide cake to same-sex couples, is unconstitutional because it compels him to do something he disagrees with. It compels him to bake a cake in a way that uh, he finds religiously objectionable. And under the logic of Employment Division versus Smith, the court would apply minimal scrutiny. It would apply this rational basis to that sort of claim. But it appears because Justice Gorsuch perhaps has a different take on the First Amendment than Justice Scalia did, and Justice Gorsuch replaced Justice Scalia, the court could end up overruling Employment Division versus Smith. But as of today, as of April 18th at 2 p.m., the court has not yet done that. And in virtually every context outside of labor law, the court applies minimal scrutiny to every law that compels someone to do something they disagree with, but it applies strict scrutiny to laws in the labor context. So maybe a turning, we've previewed it, a good bit, but squarely to the application of these ideas to to the case of Janus. Um, walk me through what it would look like. You know, the the maybe the presumption or, or anything that the court will do that that strict scrutiny route, looking at the law requiring this particular employee Janus to divert some of his wages to the union that bargains on his behalf, though he's not a member of it, and though he purports to disagree with the the speech that the union makes in terms of trying to get higher wages for state employees. The the idea is that strict scrutiny might be applied and then we'll go through that that usual route. So is instead the if the, the court kind of um, did a more consistent application of this government could not work doctrine that you, you describe, is it more along the lines of that that peyote case where they they get to that first fork in the road and say, you know, generally speaking, um, laws of fairly neutral application tend to to be okay, even if they compel folks to do things they don't want to do, and so we're going to take the the minimal scrutiny route. What's what's the the framework, the application in, in this case? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the law at issue in this case is an Illinois law, and it authorizes unions to collect fees from non-members. On the and the logic of the law is that public sector unions represent all employees, including members of the union and non-members of the union, and therefore. You know, representing employees costs money, and so unions should be able to collect revenue for all of the, or to collect fees to pay for all of the things they're doing for employees. So the petitioner, Mark Janis, he is not a member of an Illinois union, and he doesn't want to become a member, and he doesn't want to pay the fee for what the unions are doing, even if they're doing it allegedly on his behalf. He thinks they're not. And so he's claiming that this violates his First Amendment rights because it's compelling him, because the law is compelling him to pay money that, or at least 
some of his wages are going to the union as opposed to toward him. So under Abood, what the court has done is say, we're going to apply strict scrutiny to this sort of compelled subsidy toward a private use. And we're going to ask, does the government, you know, does this narrow, is this law narrowly tailored to meet a compelling governmental interest? And in the past, some of the compelling governmental interests have been the maintenance or the maintenance of labor peace and the prevention of free riders. Um, but the court has uh, really cast doubt on their legitimacy as compelling governmental interest. And so it's not clear that the court will see a compelling governmental interest involved in this case. And, and so I, I imagine that the court is going to strike down this law um, on the ground that there just is no compelling governmental interest, regardless of how narrowly tailored this law is toward a compelling governmental interest. I, I would, yes, as you said, um, get off at a different fork in the road and say, well, a law that compels someone to do something that they ideologically disagree with does not in and of itself rise to the level of strict scrutiny. I would just apply minimal scrutiny to that and ask, is the law rationally related to a legitimate governmental interest? The court has treated legitimate interests as, you know, less, you know, anything can be a legitimate interest for the most part. And that's being overbroad, but there are more legitimate interests than there are compelling interests. And the law is certainly related to a handful of legitimate interests, including because unions are statutorily required to represent all employees. Therefore, it makes sense for the government to use this as the way of financing unions. And so I would apply minimal scrutiny to this. A point that's been made by other scholars is the court would apply or would likely apply minimal scrutiny if the law were functionally identical, but it looked a little bit, if it worked a little bit different. In other words, if Illinois right now, let's just assume that Illinois did the fair share law or the agency fee law deducts wages from its employees and then takes the wages from your employee paycheck and gives it to the labor union. Let's just assume that that's how the law works now. A, a, A different way that Illinois could structure its fair share law would just to say, Okay, all employees, all public sector employees just make 5% less than they made last year. Independently, we're going to pass a law that just gives the union money. Uh, And the money just happens to be equal to 5% of employees' wages last year. That sort of scheme would be functionally identical. Everyone would still lose you know, some money or they would still have or have less money than they would absent the union. Uh, and the union would get money and the union would be able to do whatever it's been doing in the past. Um, but if someone were to challenge that law and say, wait a minute, I don't like what the government is spending money on. I don't like the fact that the government is spending money on this union. I don't like what the union's doing. The court would apply minimal scrutiny to that regime and say, yeah, but this is just a tax. It's a tax that's going to something that you disagree with. Part of the Republican principle is that the majority has to be able to make determinations on what to spend money on. And so we can't allow you just to claim a First Amendment objection to uh, the government's financing of this labor union, just as the government finances all sorts of things and all sorts of you know foreign governments and churches and everything else that the government spends money on. So 
for me, the question is, given that, why would the court apply a stricter level of scrutiny to the agency fee system that exists now when it wouldn't apply that same level of scrutiny to exact same result? Yeah, that example definitely puts into stark relief a bit of the oddity as to the very different approaches the court would take to, to those two situations. I suppose, you know, procedural differences and minutiae along those lines can have legal significance and, and maybe are important, but, but when you describe it that way, it does sound odd. I suppose that that is the, the sort of different approach, the thing that your, your doctrine would sort of meld together or harmonize that if laws like the, the latter one you described and laws like the ones on the books now sort of functionally exist the same way in this context, they would be treated the same way by the court based on this doctrine then. Yeah, that's right. And you can think of other examples too. So, you know, right now it's in the news that Starbucks is going to require or it's going to close 8,000 of its stores and require its employees to go through training with regard to racial or racial bias. You know, Starbucks is not a public employer, but one can imagine that the state of Illinois requires all of its employees to undergo similar training and that it might require its employees to pay for that training. You might say, look, we're going to deduct 1% of your wages and those wages are going to go to these, you know, anti-biased uh, trainings and it's going to be paid for by this private organization that puts on these trainings. And so we're just going to make you pay for these trainings because we think it's important that we have a workplace that doesn't discriminate against um, our you know, customers or the general public. And if an employee claims, not only do I not want to do this, but I'm going to sue saying that you cannot take my wages and give it to this anti-bias training because the anti-bias trainer is this private party who I ideologically disagree with. I think the court would also apply minimal scrutiny to that sort of First Amendment challenge on the ground that, no, this is just a workplace management thing that, you know, in every other context, we apply minimal scrutiny. In this context, we apply minimal scrutiny because the government couldn't work at every single workplace decision. It was a First Amendment constitutional question. So I think when it comes to agency fees and labor unions, that issue has taken on such a strong valence for decades now that everyone has very firm positions with respect to it. You either think it's right or you think it's wrong. But as soon as you would just take a slightly different example and ask the same question where you're taking someone's money and making them pay for something that they might not want to pay for, it just becomes really challenging to explain why that should be subject to First Amendment heightened scrutiny. Okay, maybe I'm kind of taken up now more than an hour of your time, but just one last one to close. I, you know, you, you said you thought that there's a, a decent chance this this Illinois law could be struck down, that the the court could find for Janus. Um, you think this could be looking at it more broadly, uh, the beginning or just a a method of litigation, First Amendment claims um, aimed at striking down laws of this type, and 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 in such a way create a bit of a Lochner era type situation where court uh, responding to these sorts of claims tends to construct down regulations um, in kind of a similar way that they did that they did there? Or do you think kind of, you know, undergirded by the, the essential government could not work doctrine that the court will at some point reassert that, that principle? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that Janus will have tremendous short-term consequences 
for labor law. I think as far as long-term consequences are concerned, Masterpiece Cake Shop is by far a more important case, and I'll explain why. But as far as short-term effects, uh, the, the court has, as I say in this paper, bracketed off labor law as its own thing, uh, as far as the application of, of the government could not work doctrine. Even, even Justice Alito has expressed sympathy for this idea that the government can compel people to pay taxes for things that uh, they object to. So regardless of which way this case goes, I'm not totally concerned about its application outside the context of labor law. But I do think it will have a tremendous consequence for labor law. Um, 23 states today have agency fee laws that will immediately be declared unconstitutional if the court rules against the state. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, to see future challenges to um, you know, laws in all, three, all 23 of those states, or at least the legislatures will probably just change their laws. That said, I also wouldn't be surprised if all 23 states didn't simply change their laws to just pay unions directly, mm-hmm. as opposed to engaging in the sort of agency fee arrangement. Or if they don't, I wouldn't be surprised to see more sort of wild patch strikes Virginia and Oklahoma and Kentucky. So either way, I think something will be different in the future after Janice, uh, if it goes in Janice's favor. But I'm not terribly concerned about the effect it will have on uh, the government could not work doctrine. I imagine that this will end up just as a cul-de-sac as opposed to the beginning of a new line of cases. Although there is, in, in Janice, there was this very odd situation when the case got started because the person who initially led the litigation was the governor of Illinois, uh, Bruce Rauner, who filed the original suit in 2015. And he filed suit claiming that Illinois law was unconstitutional in federal court. So the defendant initially was the state of Illinois, as represented by the attorney general. And so on one side was the governor of Illinois. On the other side was the attorney general of Illinois. And even though the governor's role was in, or, and the governor ended up being dismissed from the case because he didn't have standing. But from the perspective of an Illinois taxpayer, I think it sort of articulates what's so odd about this doctrine because a taxpayer in Illinois in 2015 was paying money that went to the governor's position and was saying that labor unions, you know, are bad and was going to the attorney general's position, which was saying that, you know, these fair share laws are good. And so every taxpayer in Illinois presumably was being compelled to fund some sort of ideological position they disagreed with. And I don't think that, you know, the court, I I see that as a neat irony, but I don't think that the court will, will treat that as, oh, given this and given that we tolerated this, um, we should, you know, not have tolerated it and we should have allowed people to segregate their tax dollars and to supporting whichever side they wanted, which I think would just lead to chaos. But I I think that as far as long-term effects are concerned, Masterpiece Cake Shop is, is the case to watch because if the court ends up ruling in that case that the First Amendment prohibits the government from compelling someone to take that sort of action to bake a cake, despite the existence of the state anti-discrimination law, and say that the anti-discrimination law is applied as unconstitutional under the First Amendment, then I do think that will lead to a wide array of challenges. Um, because 
the, the sort of religious exemption cases to this point have all been brought under um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So after employment versus, after the Employment Division versus Smith in 1990, I believe that's the year, Congress passed RIFRA in 1993, and Congress passed RIFRA because they disagreed with the court's holding in Employment Division versus Smith, which essentially said we're going to apply minimal scrutiny to all of these laws. And so just as a matter of practice, the, the, whenever the sort of religious exemption issue has come up, uh, the court has said, well, you know, the, we might have applied the government could not work doctrine type case in the past. But what we see from RIFRA is that Congress is saying, actually, government could work in this context. We Congress is willing to include religious exemptions from all federal law as just a matter of policy, and we're going to implement that policy, that makes sense. And indeed, in Illinois, with the fair share law, Illinois has a similar religious exemption. So I, I, just to be clear, I don't want anyone to come away from this paper thinking that I'm opposed to religious exemption. I happen to think that religious exemptions make a lot of sense, but just as a matter of statute, as opposed to as a matter of constitutional requirement. And I think that if the court applies in Masterpiece Cake Shop, a constitutional requirement for a religious exemption, then uh, it will lead to a huge deregulation campaign across the country as people claim religious exemptions from all sorts of laws, anti-discrimination and other ones. Yeah, that that does seem to be the one where there's a more slippery uh, slope, depending on which side of the case, I suppose might be more or less willing to, to want to go down it. But anyways, uh, Nicholas Bowie from Harvard Law School, I really appreciate you taking so much time to unpack these issues and describe your paper for us. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. And with that, our program for April 20th, 2018 is complete. I'd like to thank one more time my guest, Nicholas Bowie, Thank my production staff here as well, including Nick Perez. Thanks also to our editor, David Houston. And thanks to you, our dear listener, for tuning in. It's great, greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can be yours for tuning into the podcast. Just find a short true-false test appended to this podcast on the dailyjournal.com site. It's going to be Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.